Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. Okay guys, before we get into the final episode of Season 1, I just want to say a real big thank you to everyone who's supported the show over the last few months. It's been really great to see us grow to a point where we were being listened to in 40 different countries and we were closing in on 4,000 downloads. So thank you once again guys for listening, for sharing and for recommending this podcast and also for leaving reviews on each show. Our next step is we'll be taking a break over the Christmas and New Year period, but we'll be back on the 8th of January with a great lineup of guests for season two. So stay tuned for that, guys. For this episode, I'm joined by Andy Hall. Andy has worked in both further and higher education for the last eight years within the areas of fitness, health and exercise, sport and exercise science, and sports coaching. He was previously the program leader for both the HNC and HND levels for fitness, health and exercise courses at a Scottish college, and has recently been appointed as the course lead on the Bachelor of Science Sports Coaching Program at Robert Gordon University. He possesses prior experience as a member of Scottish Rugby's under-18 rugby team, and has undertaken internships and strength conditioning, as well as performed various roles as sports and exercise scientist, sports nutritionist, and teaching fellow for an array of sports clubs, academic institutions. Andy holds a first-class bachelor's degree in strength and conditioning, a master's by research with a focus on high-intensity interval training, has recently completed his PhD Viva in the area of sprint interval training and physical performance. His research interests include sprint interval training, high-intensity interval training, autoregulation, exercise performance, and areas of health physiology. In this episode, Andy talks about the history of high-intensity interval training, the common faults made by people when implementing high-intensity interval training, and his recommendations for programming high-intensity interval training within military and first responder populations. Good evening, Andy, and welcome to the podcast, bud. Hi, John. Thanks very much for, for having me. No problem, Andy. Been looking forward to this sit-down chat with you, mate. Obviously, got to know you a bit during our time together at uh, Rob Gordon's University, and I thought you'd be a great guest to come on and just really share your experience and your knowledge as well for this uh, audience. Yeah, it's class. Thanks very much for having me. It's, uh, it's always a good chance to obviously catch up with you, John, and, and also get a chance to, to speak to your listeners uh, about the, the topic area. No worries, Andy. Thank you very much, mate. Um, obviously, me and you have known each other the last couple of years from Robert Gordon's, mate, but for anyone who hasn't come across you in any of your work, Andy, could you just please just give us an overview of you know your career, where you started out and where you're currently at? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, where, where to start? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I did my, my undergrad at um, Abertay University. Uh, looking at sports science and, and transitioning into strength and conditioning. Um, I suppose always, always from being young, had a, as many do, have that love of, of sport and, and physical activity and, you know, aiming to be professional. Um, mm-hmm. so, for, so for me, it was mainly football and rugby. So I was quite lucky in my career to, to make it to the Scottish under-18s. Uh, for rugby union, so I was, you know, lucky to play with Finn Russell and Stuart Hogg and, and kind of that. I mean, not the same standard as those, obviously, but um, I was lucky to play with them coming through. And from there, it was, a, you know, a decision of, you know, what do I want to do for my my career? You know, I didn't really like maths or English, so sport it was. Progressed um, through university, um, managed to graduate with distinction and, and merit in my third and fourth years. Um, and as part of that process, just trying to get stuck into as, as much as possible. So worked as a sports nutritionist, um, professional football team, did an internship across at St. Andrews University, which was a great learning experience. 
um, helped in more teaching-based scenarios. It was the Academy of Sports I worked with, and started to progress through a master's um, with Dr. John Fabro, uh, looking at high-intensity training. Mm-hmm. And you know, from that, kind of got a bit more of a love of teaching. I didn't really want to work as a PE teacher. Didn't really want to. I mean, nothing against teaching children. You know, I used to really enjoy coaching children, but to have it as a full-time job was, was not quite for me. So there was a job came up at Fife College, actually, as a lecturer there. So I applied for that and was very fortunate to get the position. Um, from there, worked my way to being the course lead, the HNC and HND fitness, health and exercise program that was run. Um, and then a job came up at Robert Gordon's University. And I've done a bit of, of lecturing at, at Abate and, you know, a couple of other unis, but uh, went for the the position at Robert Gordon's uni, where obviously I, I met yourself and was successful in that. And as of uh, Monday, uh, actually, yes, just the other day, um, I got the job as the course lead for the BSC sport coaching uh, program. I'm obviously very, very pleased and quite honoured to do. Nice, mate, and congratulations on that, dude. I'm sure you'll be <laughs> breaking into that course and take that forward, mate. Um, obviously, what you mentioned there briefly about doing your master's in high intensity and that, where, whereabouts was that? Was that at Abate? Yeah, so that was at Abate. I mean, it's, it's a difficult decision for many students to, to do is, you know, having a, lots of people have a, a degree now. So what, what do you have that makes you stand out? So for me, the option was to do the master's. Obviously, I've done well in my, my undergrad. There's a decision to whether to do it by masters by research. Mm-hmm. So for those of your listeners that aren't quite sure about that, it's essentially a year-long uh, research project or two research projects that you do. So think more of a year-long dissertation, just in, in more depth with the aim of publishing that research. Um, or you can do a taught masters. So a bit more, uh, you have lectures, university-style teaching, and then you do a, a smaller dissertation, again, with the aim of it being published at the end of it. Um, but for me, financially, uh, you know, the masters by research was, you know, was about four thousand uh, pounds. Many sports science-related masters go up to eleven, twelve thousand pounds. So that was that wasn't an option for me. So the masters by research, uh, which I you can then turn because it's by research, you can turn into the first year of a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took that option, and as of next week, we'll hopefully have finished my corrections for my PhD. Nice, mate. So then it'll just be Dr. Hall, mate, and I'll be awesome. Dr. Hall, that's, that's it. I don't think I'll ever call myself Dr. Hall, but um, I think Andy's, Andy's just fine. I'll still give you the shout-outs, mate. Don't you worry. <laughs> um, what, what was it that drew you then to, to Abertain doing high-intensity? Was it the subject area? Was it the lecturing staff you'd be under there? No, again, <laughs> I feel I'm, I'm being a bit too honest here, maybe, but at the time, it was, well, I think it was two Bs and a C to get into their program at the time. And apologies uh, if, I've, if I've got that wrong, but off my knowledge, that was it. Um, so as part of the, the processes, you could you put down lots of universities and you, you choose one. Um, school for me at that time, although, you know, if I could do the work, I found it quite easy. If I couldn't, I wasn't very interested, especially with the, the rugby progressing pretty well at the side of it. I put a lot more of my time and effort into that. So I maybe didn't get the grades that I was capable of and if I could go back again I would definitely pull my finger out earlier and, and try harder although saying that I'm quite happy with, with you know where I've ended up mm-hmm. so yeah I went to Abertay because I, I didn't quite make the grades to go elsewhere um, but I'm glad that I didn't it was a good institution at the time for me mm-hmm. um, 
to progress through and that the staff were the staff were very good there and that was part of the decision to stay at Abertay to do the masters by research rather than you know going elsewhere to do the masters by research. Nice man. And was it uh, for the subject area obviously around high intensity training? Was it something you came up with yourself? Would you collaborate with your supervisor and say, "Hey, listen, this would be a great idea to work on this"? Yeah, well, at that time, working under under him was great, uh, and still is. So I'm I'm very lucky to to stay in contact, and we're still publishing uh, together. Um, I mean, high intensity training fascinates me because you know my background is all about you know going to the gym, you know lifting weights, um, you know training every day to get these adaptations and i was absolutely fascinated by the fact that i could do you know 10 minutes of work um or you know within a 20 minute session and get the same adaptations as running miles and miles and miles for hours and hours and hours and i mean even now even though i'm i'm you know pretty deep into the, the research and investigating that side of it something you know at the core of your still finds that completely fascinating and it's quite difficult to get your head around. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to put in the hours and hours and hours. You know, you can use your time more efficiently for tactical training, technical training, you know, getting those adaptations, uh, you know, mental, you know, toughness, et cetera, rather than having to necessarily, you know, be in the gym, having, you know, three to five minute rest periods between sets, you know, and, and taking an hour and a half out of your day. You can do it in 20 minutes. That's awesome, dude. And I mean, I'm looking forward to digging into it in a bit more depth with you. Um, obviously, it's gained a lot of popularity and you see it a lot with regards to people's training. Um, from what I see a lot online, I think it gets bastardized a fair bit. And so I'm really keen just to sit down and chat with you and break it down so guys can actually approach this, you know, a bit more scientifically and, you know, correctly. So for anyone who's curious about high intensity training, where, whereabouts do they come from? Where did it actually start? You know, when did we decide, hey, this is probably a better idea and better use of our time? So, I mean, high intensity training, it's been around for quite a while. It's been around for a bit longer than people initially think. Uh, go back even through interval training, you know, just your standard interval training or even variations like fartlek. Um, where you've got a, a sprint, a jog, a walk, and obviously interval training or repeated sprint training. You've got, um, you know, a very intense burst of activity followed by a period of rest. That's kind of where it started. Um, and uh, Tabata training is probably the best, more well-known version uh, of that. Uh, more recently, it, it's got a bit more acknowledgement. Uh, it was uh, Professor Gabala um, across in Canada. Um, in, in, I think one of his PhD students, uh, Burgermaster, let's say Kirsten Burgermaster. Uh, so they they found you know 100% improvement in people's VO2 max from doing four to seven 30 second sprints. So the idea behind that is you're on an exercise bike um, and you you sprint as fast as you can, as hard as you can for 30 seconds. You get a four minute recovery. You do that four times. Um, or you know six times depending on, on which week you're in and that was after two weeks of training so you're getting these astronomical um, endurance and aerobic adaptations in in two weeks or six sessions is what they did and I think since then it's, it's exploded a little bit um, one of the issues you write about it, it, it kind of being altered is that you have lots of individuals now perhaps with a promotion aspect to it rather than a research aspect to it yeah. where they will you know sell hit classes or, um, or high intensity 
classes. Um, and I think it comes back to, you know, what do classes high intensity? For me, if you're doing star jumps for, for five minutes, that's not really high intensity. It's, it's more than moderate, but it's, it's not really high. It's not maximal. It's not all out sprints. So uh, I think there's a bit of a misconception around that, perhaps from, from promoters kind of coming in and, and using it to, to do classes. Not that those classes aren't beneficial. You know, lots of people enjoy them and, and take part of them, and it wonders for physical activity, getting people to engage with exercise and reduce uh, sedentary lifestyles. But from a hit perspective, it's, it's often not quite fit. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Aram Sent. Uh, I mean, I've seen some things online that does just make me shake my head. Uh, there's one gym, I think you're in Aberdeen, I won't name names, um, but I think they had a Tabata class, which is obviously a Tabata principle, 20 seconds of work for 10 seconds rest, four minutes total. I think they proposed the class to be about 45 to 60 minutes. Well, that's yeah. obviously not Tabata. And if you're managing yeah. a string that many together, you're more of a superhuman than me so it's like see yeah i mean i mean same here and that's kind of where, where i'm coming from where yes i mean for example in that gym it's, it's going to be great to get people involved in the classes and, and taking part but if if you can work at an all-out intensity or near all-out intensity for 45 minutes join the olympics yeah. you know yes you're, you're more of a an athlete than, than i've perhaps ever seen <laughs> Or you're taking very large rest breaks, one of the, one of the two. Exactly, exactly. So obviously you touched upon like how, from a time standpoint as well, we can get great adaptations and it's more economical. So what, what are the general benefits we're looking at with regards to hit training, not only from like a logistic and time standpoint, like we're talking performance from, let's say, like cardiovascular conditioning standpoint, first of all, and then we'll have a look from a strength point. What are those benefits we can gain from it? Yeah, so there's, I think the first thing to do is to differentiate between high-intensity training and sprint interval training. Mm -hmm. So your sprint interval training, you're looking at things that are less than 30 seconds. Um, you know, and more normally, you know, 15 or, or 10-second bursts. Um, with your high-intensity training, you're looking at less than four minutes of, of activity. Um, with both of them, um, you get similar adaptations but the time constraint is quite different. So if you did, you know, eight, 10 second sprints with a 30 second recovery, you're, you're not looking at very much time at all in the gym, you know, less mm -hmm. than 10 minutes. Whereas if you do multiple four minutes, that's often portrayed as time efficient. But when you've done a warm up and a cool down on top of that, it's not mm -hmm. necessarily. So I think it's important to differentiate between those kind of before we, we, we move forward. From a cardiovascular perspective, um, you get you know, larger, or you can get larger structural changes. You can get uh, left ventricular hypertrophy. So the left ventricle in your heart um, is kind of a, the larger part of the my, myocardial muscle. So when that contracts, you pump more blood around the body per contraction. Um, the bigger that is so the hypertrophy part of it it means that every contraction you then put even more blood so you can get more oxygen around the body more quickly uh, to exercising muscles and therefore you can use that oxygen to generate atp and energy um, other kind of changes you get re regarding that um, you get increases in mitochondrial enzymes mm -hmm. 
So it's all well and good having a larger heart, uh, or larger, stronger heart muscle, so to speak, and moving the oxygen to the muscle. But if you can't take it from the blood um, into the cell, and you can't take it from the cell into the mitochondria, which is essentially the almost the powerhouse of the of the cell, then it's it's not very good. So you get an increase in mitochondrial enzymes. Uh, you get an increase in mitochondrial density, so you get more mitochondria, and therefore you can use more oxygen to make even more energy, and you can obviously use energy for contractions. Um, and those mitochondria also become more efficient, so they're, they're better at taking in the oxygen and using it to, to make the energy. Um, other changes you get from that, and this is, it requires further investigation um, before we, we really go on, but it looks like you get an increase in glycogen storage and utilization. So you can, so, the, so when you do a sprint, the first kind of substrates that you use, you use your intramuscular ATP. So the energy that's within your muscles, and that's gone in about two seconds. After that, you've got phosphocreatine, tends to be the, the main driver, and that goes up to about 10 seconds, and that, that replenishes. Uh, after that, your glycogen system, uh, takes over a bit more and that will take you through to about 15 20 seconds and after that's more oxidative it takes a longer to get the oxygen in but you make more energy from it but having an increase in in phosphocreatine stores and your glycogen stores um or being able to use them more efficiently means that you can then use those stores for a slightly longer period of time uh, or you can make more energy with them more quickly and therefore generate more power so you've got potential power adaptations from that which can i mean if you think about doing endurance based sports um you know when it's tough and you really need to get through those those hard bursts whether that's going up a hill whether it's an intense bit of activity those stores really really help with that and with regards to obviously from the cardiovascular and conditioning side of things what about strength adaptations can we typically see from this andy because obviously we know most guys will hit the gym even if they're doing strength work, you know, anywhere from like one to five rep range and across multiple sets, how would that differ yeah. across the high intensity side of things? Well, from a, from a high intensity, because a lot of the research has been done into cycling and, and running. Yep. So there hasn't been that much, at least in my, in my kind of research that I've noticed, into specific strength adaptations. It does look like you get neural adaptations. Uh, when you go to the gym, and you, for example, you're lifting weights, you see small increases in strength within kind of four weeks. A lot of that is neural development rather than mm -hmm. structural protein changes. Um, so you, you, it looks like you're getting similar neural changes that would obviously help with um, increased motor units. So the nerve and the, the fiber it innovates. Um, the more of those you have, the more fibers kind of contract, the more fibers contract at the same time. And therefore more force but it's actually quite an under-researched area i would definitely say and that's something that uh, we're looking to do next we've, we've just sent out a systematic review based on high intensity training and uh, sprint interval training and where research should really go next and that's one of the suggestions that I've, we've made um, for that because you while you get these physiological physiological changes particularly in endurance and aerobic-based areas that can lead to, you know, improved time trial performance or improved time to exhaustion, increase your VO2 max. Um, and we see improvements in 
Wingate peak power and Wingate average power. So for those of your listeners that aren't too sure, Wingate is a 30 second maximal effort sprint on a, on a bike. And we see improvements in peak and average and minimum power there. Actually applying that to things like 1RMs or 3RMs, there hasn't been a lot really in that really in that area but with the neural changes or expected suspected i should say neural changes there's um i i would assume tentatively there'll be strength i don't want to put my name out there too much but uh, there'll be strength adaptations just to some extent but perhaps not the same extent as resistance training i think the next thing that if, if this very time efficient intense strength you know high intensity training or sprint interval training gives you those cardiovascular endurance-based adaptations what about training that concurrently with something like a maximal strength program um or varying degrees of strength training uh, you know what are the adaptations that we get from that yeah definitely and i mean that would be interesting to see as well because obviously similar hormonal profiles rather than switching over to more endurance base and going down was AMPK so pathways you know rather than the mTOR stuff so yeah that's interesting now obviously from all our chats Andy you know I'm very much performance minded and stuff like that but obviously for the guys listening there's still that health and wellness and longevity factor to them as well seen through their careers and that what were the benefits on their health and wellness would they get from more high intensity interval training than your traditional like lower intensity long duration stuff well, I think the first thing is that it's, I mean, well, the biggest barrier to, to exercise or the biggest cited barrier to exercise is lack of time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've, you get up early, you maybe like get the kids ready for school, drop the kids off, you know, you then go to work, you're, you perhaps spend a lot of time sedentary or even spend a lot of time on your feet at work. You know, you finish work, you pick the kids, you come home, you cook dinner, you know, you, you don't really have the time for two hours to go out running or, or go out cycling but i'm sure you can find 20 minutes to to do something now whether that's some sprints um whether that's on an exercise bike working you know pretty hard in those those work to rest ratios that is the biggest selling point i would say for this in terms of a wellness side of it obviously you've got all the benefits that physical activity brings and high intensity training is no exception to that uh, i mean the health aspects that we've we've touched on already um have big implications from both the performance side of things and the physical activity side of things it would be interesting to know the the effect on weight loss mm-hmm. um, because while you are exercising at great intensity um it's it's not very high volume so there's there's various research suggests one way or another for for weight loss one thing that you can get from this type of training is uh, an increase in recovery time so you recover faster so for example one study that i've done is you you get them to do some demanding exercise you give them a high intensity program you then get them to do the same demanding exercise afterwards but you're looking at their rate of recovery following that demanding exercise and they, they recover, you know, over half the time faster. And they're ready to go again and do the, the demanding exercise again. Mm-hmm. So if you have individuals that are looking or are struggling to, you know, quote unquote, get fit, you know, what about doing this type of activity so you recover faster? And therefore, when you are doing those 
those weight loss programs when you are doing those hard circuits you know you've gone to the gym each bout of exercise that you do is relatively easier because you're recovering faster and therefore you can try harder you can apply more and lose weight faster nice and when you say about uh, recovery there and are you just talking about strictly like heart rate like being able to come back down to like a lower level baseline are we talking both both physiological and mental okay so looking at lactate profiling so when you do an intense bout of activity your your lactate levels you know often termed lactic acid but it's not quite lactic acid we, we used to think that lactic acid uh made you feel tired and actually it, it doesn't you you reuse lactate as a as a fuel um, lactic acid just happens to occur at the same point as fatigue so they used to go hand in hand but you know all your coaches saying you know put your legs in the air let the lactic acid let the lactic acid out that's not actually what's happening but you, you get in this increase in, in lactate which you move and uh, you can remove that faster and therefore we use it as a fuel faster uh, decreases in heart rate um, and also um, i took verbal methods from them as well because it's all well and good being in a, a laboratory um, in a very professional clinical setting and somebody mm-hmm. saying oh no here's a nice looking graph you are recovering faster but if you're dying on the floor in a heap because you're, you're tired that graph means nothing to you yeah. instead you know just you know on a scale of one to ten how are you feeling you know like every minute or every 30 seconds how are you feeling you, you can plot that and it's a lot more subjective to that individual um so that it i think the only way to describe it is they feel like they're ready to go again when the first time around you know they weren't at that stage they, they just didn't feel able to. Now, everybody will have their, their own version of what they feel when they can go again. Um, but if that feeling occurs faster and earlier, you can then apply again and again and again and again and obviously get better adaptations, whether that's strength, weight loss, performance, endurance, you know, whatever it is that you're after. Sweet, sweet. Thanks, Andy. Now, obviously, I've said to you already, like, Online, you'll see every variation of high-intensity stuff just getting bastardized all over the place. From your professional opinion, what, what do you see as the, the most common faults people you know, commit when they're trying to do HIIT training? They, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of the fault lies with the instructors. Mm-hmm. You know, if not everyone is an expert in physical activity and not everyone is an expert in exercise and you know even people who've researched it for years wouldn't consider themselves experts in that area but you might have an individual who's worked really hard and done their level two gym instructor or done their level three personal trainer and then all of a sudden is essentially selling hit specific programs without having an understanding of a lot of the physiology behind it so high intensity doesn't mean that you are just working hard for the whole session so let's take that that gym in aberdeen that you mentioned earlier you know, those people aren't working for maximal effort for 40 minutes. You just mm-hmm. can't do it. Instead, what they should be looking to do is work hard for repeated bouts of exercise and make sure they've got enough recovery between each bout of exercise to really apply themselves because it's the intensity that makes a difference. It's not staying at that 70% level. It's about going to that 100% having a rest, going to that 100% having a rest. And depending on the adaptations you want, you can play around with those work to rest ratios. So if you want more power-based adaptations, 
you know, have a longer recovery period. It gives your body a chance to replenish the phosphocreatine stores and the glycogen stores. Um, so that each time you do it, you're, you're going to the more maximal effort. If you want more endurance-based adaptations, have a, a shorter work-to-rest ratio, for example, a one to three, so 10 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and repeat that again and again, because you don't have time to replenish those stores and you're stressing your oxidative system. You know, you're having to use oxygen, you're having to get better at turning that into energy to use it because you don't have the time to replenish your stores. And if you want a bit of both, you know, go for a one to 10 work to rest ratio, a one to eight work to rest ratio, for example. So I think that's one thing is a lot of people not having an understanding of what they're trying to do physiologically with that to, to get the adaptations they want. And I think another one is, is using a variety of exercises. Now, we, it's a fine line between, you'll notice yourself working in performance sport, you know, what makes it enjoyable and what makes it really beneficial. So if you're working, obviously, with elite level athletes, a lot of the time, you know, it's your job. You've got to do it. You've got to work hard and, and that's what you do. Whereas if you're working with a lot of um, beginners or people who are doing exercise for fun, you want to incorporate a variety of exercises, star jumps, high knees, bum kicks, repeated, you know, runs, whatever that is. But, you know, can you really do maximal high intensity press-ups? Okay, you, you, you can't, you can do them quickly. Mm -hmm. You can't go, you know, that all out movement speed as if you were doing a sprint. You know, if we took a steep hill and got you to sprint up as hard as you could, you can't really do press-ups that replicate that because your arms don't move that fast. Um, you know, even if you did them explosively and pumped into the air, you then have all that time in the air where you're landing again on your hands before you go up again. So it's, it's choosing the right exercise that replicate what you want to do instead of just making it a hard circuit. Because a hard circuit is undoubtedly, undoubtedly beneficial, but it's not really high-intensity training for these specific adaptations. Okay, cool. That's great, Andy. Thank you very much for clearing that up. And um, obviously, as I chatted to you before, the main audience this podcast is aimed at is for you know individuals involved within like the military, but also first responder organizations such as the police, the fire service, and ambulance service as well. Um, from your experience now, what would you say your recommendations would be to individuals in these organizations? You know, who want to implement some sort of hit training into you know around things like what modalities would be best for them, you know, based on not having much kit or, you know, not, not a lot of space, frequency, volume, you know, intensity, how would they plan out, say, a block of high intensity training for themselves? Well, I mean, firstly, thanks to, to all of your listeners for all the work that they do, for all the services that they're involved in, um, you know, really hats off to them. Um, for the programming side of things um, first, there's no structured programming that they really need to do to get at, you know, beneficial adaptations from this type of training. You'll see a lot of research increases the number of sprints that we do. So they might start off in week one and do four sprints of 30 seconds. Um, and then in week two, they'll do five sprints of 30 seconds and up to seven. Uh, but a recent review showed that that didn't actually, you know, increasing the number of sets didn't increase VO2 max compared to just staying at the same one. But because this is quite a new, although high intensity training has been around for a while, it's only more recently has, you know, programming and more of your strength and conditioning related periodization being integrated into it. So there's not actually that much research. From a 
standalone point of view, as long as you're doing two sessions a week, three sessions a week, um, with 24 hours recovery between each session, uh, you can fit it into your schedule. So for example, if you work shifts, you know, or you're working 12 hour shifts, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but you happen to be off Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, make Thursday, Friday, Saturday, your, your training days. And as long as you do them in the morning of each day, you've then got your 24 hours recovery between them. Um, so I'd say a minimum of two sessions a week, preferably three. Um, don't make them more than 20 minutes. You know, give yourself a five minute warm up, a five minute cool down, uh, and use the, the 10 minutes within that to, to structure your program. So work hard for your 10 seconds or your 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, give yourself um, a one to three work to rest ratio if you want, or a lower work to rest ratio if you want endurance adaptations, and a longer one if you want um, power based adaptations, depending on your job, depending on your training goals, depending on your, your interests. Um, while it's really high intensity, it's, it's low volume, so you won't actually be that sweaty at the end of it. Um, so if it's something that you could do after work or even before work, again, depending on your, your job, um, there's no reason why you, you couldn't do that. And in terms of kit, um, again, all the laboratory-based ones tend to be on you know, motorized treadmills or on um, Monarch exercise bikes, mm-hmm. um, which is you know, specially designed. They cost a couple of grand, and you know, we're, we're very lucky to, to use them in, in, in labs. In terms of people that don't have much kit, the research suggests that uphill sprinting gives you the exact same adaptations. So take a hill that is steep enough that you can run up it. You know, you don't have to clamber up it or climb up it. Um, start at the bottom, sprint as far as you can in, in 10 seconds. Even if you count that 10 seconds in your head, you know, you don't have to have light gates. You don't have to have a stopwatch. You don't have to have your phone, you know, to, to time it. 10 seconds. Stick something at the top of that, whether it's a rock, a jumper, or a stove, whatever it is. And let's say you've got 30 seconds to get back down the, to the bottom of the hill. And then you're going again. And do that five times, eight times. That will give you the same adaptations. Uh, and that's probably the, the easiest way of, of doing that. If you do have access to a gym, again, get a treadmill, put it on an incline, and do it that way. Or choose an exercise bike that you can vary the resistance pretty quickly. So you, when you do your sprints, crank the resistance up, and then your recovery, crank the resistance right down again. So it's, it's nice. It's, it's an easy recovery. And then you're ready to go again, crank the resistance up, and, and sprint as hard as you can. And they're, they're, they're probably the easiest ways to, to do it without much kit. Uh, and again, you don't need much space as long as you have a, a, a hill nearby. Um, there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to, to do that, which in Scotland we should be reasonably <laughs> lucky with. What about, um, so obviously if you don't have access to hills, say there's someone in the south of England here who has a much flatter environment. Um, for someone who's got, say, you know, a space they can run, but it's just flat, it's not an inclined hill. Any changes on that? Would you say just like longer duration would you sprint for? Andy, <laughs> no, 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 I would, I would keep it the exact same. Um, it's, it's more about getting that resistance in there to make it that little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they have the luxury of um, a weights fest, you know, put that on, that's a bit more of the resistance. Um, if not, you're just working harder. You might need to do an extra set 
um, I wouldn't recommend sprinting any further. Um, if you sprint further, um, A, it takes more time. Uh, and B, you start moving away from your phosphocreatine glycogen breakdown in that first sprint. And the longer the sprint goes on, you move more into oxidative. But you're going to be training that system anyway with the repeated sprints because you're doing the sprint again and again and again that's going to get trained there so you don't really need to lengthen your sprints mm-hmm. um, unless you you particularly want to or you know running 200 meters is, is you know really what you want to try and achieve um if you're reasonably quick you know 100 meters you should be covering that in 10 to 12 seconds i would say maybe 13 seconds um and that's what you need so you essentially have, you've got 10 seconds you run 100 meters or just under you then have 30 seconds or 40 seconds to get back to the start to, to do that again, to, to do that again, to do that again. You could even do something on the spot. You could do something like mountain climbers. Mm-hmm. So, but you would need to really work as hard as you can. So you're not interested about, right, I need to try and last the distance. I need to try and make it through, you know, 20 sets of this. You no, know, that 10 seconds that you're focusing on has to be the hardest you can possibly work at. The, the greatest intensity you can push at and then you get your little rest and then you do it again. But you, you would have to treat it as in each 10 seconds as hard as you physically can. Um, you should be feeling reasonably ill by the end of, of doing repeated bursts of them. No, that's great, Andy. Thank you so much for that and just giving those recommendations and clear, some clear guidance for guys that could actually implement and follow there as well. Um, Andy, everyone I chat to, I'm always intrigued to know what they're doing for their own development. So... Just on that, could you give us a book, a website, or an app, you know, recommendation that you found useful in your own education or your own development? Uh, yeah, certainly. So I think, I think there's a book, so the, the first one to go through, um, and I've never met the gentleman, so I, I may butcher their names, uh, but it's by Bachel and Earl, and it's The Essentials of Strength Training and Conditioning. Okay. Now, it's, it, it covers everything from programming and, and periodization through to strength training and endure, traditional endurance-based training rather than the high intensity training. Um, it includes um, exercises, you know, how to perform them. So it's good from everything from beginners all the way through to more experienced individuals, but it's still written in an easy to understand manner. Um, it's not full of really complex technical terms that you you know, you learn them by going through the book. And it is an academic book, so there's a certain level of enjoyment, so to speak, to, to obviously reading these books. But um, I, I've found that helpful. All Everything from my undergrad all the way through to PhD, uh, I recommend it for a lot of students that I teach at RGU. Um, and it's, you know, I make sure it's in the library for them. So I'd say that's the, the first one. Um, apart from that, I would, I would recommend being comfortable using things like Google Scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, so just go on Google, type in Google Scholar, and have a look through some scientific papers that are there. Now, everything on Google Scholar will find is, is a scientific uh, read. Um, now, that varies in easy to understand to ridiculously complicated. Um, but in there, you know, put in your search terms, search for high-intensity training, search for sprint interval training, um, and you know, being comfortable using databases and sites like that that are easy accessible to lots of people you don't need to be at university to use it um, a lot of the pdfs on there are free 
you know, start building your, your research base and your knowledge base mm-hmm. from there. Because while websites are, are fantastic um, and certain ones in particular, you know, you, great to, to go on and read about, but I could write, a, I could set up a, a website in astrophysics of which I know nothing about. Um, so it's, it's kind of knowing which ones are trustworthy and which ones perhaps aren't. Um, so I think, I think Google Scholar would be a, a good good option to start with, along with the base for the mail book. Two good ones, I would say. Sweet. Thanks, Andy. I'll make sure I pop them in our show notes, bud. Um, Andy, it's been really good chatting to you, mate. If anyone listening to this, you know, wants to get in touch and pick your brain a little bit more around this subject area, what's the best way people can get in touch with you? Um, a few ways. Um, so firstly, uh, have a look at Robert Gordon's university. Um, and, and go in through there. Bit of shameless self-promotion for the, the university. Um, and yeah, have a look. Get out there, make it out Yeah, there. great, great uni. Uh, I'd encourage everyone to come and do the sports coaching course in particular. That's, that's a big one. Um, by email. Um, so my email's a.hall9 at rgu.ac.uk. Um, individuals are more than welcome to, to look me up on Twitter as well. So that's... Andy underscore Hall nine. Book recommendations and website recommendations there as well, mate. Thank you very much. Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure sitting down chatting to you, mate. I think anyone listening has had a good insight into how to actively set up the hit training and, and you know, look at it from a more scientific standpoint and get rid of some of the noise around it. So thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule, mate, to sit down. No, absolute pleasure, John. Um, thanks so much for having me. Um, LinkedIn, just, just Andy Hall um, and ResearchGate as well. As, just Andy Hall. Okay. Um, and, and please, I'd encourage everyone to to get in touch. Um, love to hear from a, a lot of your viewers and, and listeners and see what their interests are and see if there's, there's anything I can learn from. Um, and if anybody is looking for more research or more information in the topic area, I'd be more than happy to provide that to them. That's awesome, Andy. Thank you so much, mate. I'll make sure I put all those links into the show notes along with your... Um... Hi guys, really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarchy and Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. To continue supporting us, can I ask you to do me a simple favor. To share the show, please take a screenshot of whatever episode you're listening to and put it in your stories on Instagram and make sure you tag me in it. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. Either tag me at Coach John P or at Monarchy Performance, and I will reshare it. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.